Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland. We take timeless biblical truth and help you to apply it in the context of your daily life. If you'd like to join us live at one of our campuses or stream one of our services online, go to peavine.org for times, locations, and more information. Well, thank you to our worship team. Great, great job leading us in worship today. Hey, if you have your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 18, that's going to be over in the very beginning of your Bible, just a few books in, 1 Kings 18. And I'm starting on uh, going back to revival, rekindling the fire of Jesus in our lives as we're trying to get to that place where, hey, we need a move of God. Look, can you agree with me? We need a move of God in America. Can I hear an amen right there? Like we, we need God to do something. And so that doesn't come. We can't manufacture that, but we can prepare for that. And so today I want to preach on one of those things that help us prepare for revival, and that is lay down the tracks. That'll make sense in about three minutes. We're not the only ones that think America needs revival. For years, uh, Christians have sensed these times in, in, uh, in the world and in our nation where we needed a great awakening, a move of God. And, and so they've known today, I'm preaching on the subject of prayer, they've known prayer is a central part of that. For example, Samuel Chadwick said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from their prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Corey Ten Boom said, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. Then uh, A.T. Pearson said, there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. Oswald Chambers' prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And finally, where I got my title, Watchman Knee, our prayers lay down the track, lay the track down which God's power can come. Our prayers lay down the track on which God's power can come. We need a move of God in America, right? We need a move of God in our land. We need a move of God in our own lives. We need one in our, in our church's life. We, we know that if that's going to happen, prayer has to be a part of that. But the fact is, we still aren't praying in America. The, the presidential prayer team found out that only 45% of Americans say they pray every day, and that's a very low number considering most people lie. Like you say, do you pray every day? Oh, yeah, I'm Sunday school answer. Yeah, is my preacher seeing this? Yeah, I pray every day. So only 45% of the people would even lie about it. Like, it's a low number. 65% say they pray once a week, but not daily, and then I love this. They broke it down by political persuasion. 53% of conservatives pray, 42% of moderates pray, and 33% of liberals pray, pray that I don't know who they're praying to. And then uh, 30, 30% of liberals never pray, 14% of moderates, and uh, 9% of conservatives say they never pray. We're not praying a whole lot. And then when we do pray, just because we pray doesn't mean we're praying the right way, right? Like even when we do pray, sometimes we pray and we get junk like this. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths. A man and a woman. Can we do a collective eye roll all together? Just roll your eyes. What in the world? 
And, and by the way, if you, if you think the a woman part was bad, which by the way is not a statement about women, just a ridiculous thing, it's not a word. A woman is not a word. Amen is a Hebrew term that means so let it be. It has nothing to do with a man, right? Uh, anyway, so my mind's going places that I, I, I held it in check in the first two services and I'm having a harder time. I'm tired now and I'm having a harder time. So many things I could say right there. Uh, but if you thought the A woman part of the prayer was bad, the first part of it was a train wreck before we ever got to A woman. It was basically a paganistic prayer before we ever got to the A woman part. And so we're not praying in America very much. And then some of the 45% who are praying are doing that ridiculousness when they pray. And I just want to tell you, that's not going to get revival sent into America, into your life, or into our nation. And so hear me when I say this about revival. I am not telling you this morning that we can pray pray ourselves into revival but I am saying that without prayer we won't have revival like well I'm not saying there's no guarantee in the Bible that if we pray enough God will send revival there's no guarantee in the Bible that we can pray down the glory of God but I am saying this the glory of God never falls without prayer and so our job is to lay down the tracks on which a heavenly revival can come into our lives my life, our church's life, our community's life, and our nation's life. As a matter of fact, I would say this. I'm not a prophet, son of a prophet. Don't play one on television. I'm not a prophet. But I'm going to say that if something doesn't happen in America, we are in trouble. We are in an hour in our history, a historic moment where prayer is the need of the hour. Revival is the requirement for today. And we stand at the precipice of decision and our decision must be a decision to pray. Just like it was in 1 Kings 18. So would you honor God's word by standing with me this morning? And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it's on the screen. 1 Kings chapter 18 I'm going to read so much more than I normally do, but I, I want you to hear this story. I've had several people tell me this morning, as we've read through the story, they, they saw things they've never seen before. And so it's such a good story. But let's begin reading in verse number 20. So Ahab su summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. And then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers with fire, he is God. All the people said, that's fine. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you're so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, then call on the name of the Lord your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. There was no sound, no one answered. They danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly for he is a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he has wandered away or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until, God, until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. 
Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench and uh, built, then he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranged the wood, cut up the bowl, and placed it on the wood. He said, fill your water pots with water and poured it on the offering to be burning on the wood. And then he said a second time. They did it a second time and a third time. They did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. He even filled the trench with water. And the time for, the, for, uh, for offering, the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. I am your servant, that at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord, so uh, answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell. Consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Thank you. You may be seated. So let me tell you where we are in the story. This is a pivotal point in the nation of Israel. Israel has a wicked king. If I can put it, if you'll just let me put it in the vernacular of our nation or in our day so that we understand that we don't understand king, queen a whole lot. Uh, Israel has a wicked president. That's what they have. And they have a wicked vice president. Now her, his vice president is his wife and her name is Jezebel. How many of you heard of Jezebel before, right? Never in a good way, right? Probably, I don't know, there's not a lot of boys named Ahab, not a lot of girls named Jezebel around. It just doesn't carry, and the reason it doesn't carry great connotations is because they were wicked above wicked. They did, number one, they did all the wrong things. If it was wrong, they did it. They worshiped, number two, at all the wrong altars. They had abandoned the altar of God. Now they were serving other gods. They listened to all the wrong people. They had 850 people who were advising them who were all far from God and they denigrated all the wrong groups so they would blame all their troubles which they caused on Elijah and others. They were absolutely a mess. They were absolutely full of wickedness and the president and the vice president of Israel were making a mess out of the nation. As a matter of fact, God, because of their wickedness, had sent a drought and the drought had strangled Israel. People were doing without. People were hurting. The nation was suffering. And Ahab and Jezebel were blaming it on Elijah because Elijah is the one that said, God's not going to let it rain for three and a half years. But Elijah was just the messenger. Elijah didn't do anything wrong. The drought came because of the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel. So you got this, this, these corrupt politicians on one side of the aisle, and on the other side you've got Elijah. He was a man of God who walked with God, heard from God, spoke for God, and was angry and detested the wickedness that was sitting on the throne in Ahab and Jezebel. And so all of a sudden in 1 Kings 18, go back and read the rest of the story. They come face to face in a Western style showdown. They literally meet on the road and you can hear that, you know, Western whistle in the background. I can't even do, woo, you know, whatever it is in the background. Elijah does like this and there's going to be a showdown. Except we're not using revolvers. We're using prayer. And Elijah challenges Ahab and Jezebel to a prayer duel. Your God 
against my God. Let's see who wins. And in chapter, in verse 20 down through verse 39 of the story we read, we learn some things about praying ourselves. I want to show you five things this morning. A couple of them I'll just hit in a hurry and move on. Let me show you five things we need to learn about prayer. Number one is this. In prayer, you plus God equal a majority. In prayer, you plus God equal a majority. Now Ahab meets Elijah on this road and he, he accuses Elijah of being the problem. And Elijah, instead of apologizing, says, hey, I'll challenge your guys to a prayer duel. And what he said was, I want to challenge the prophets of uh, Baal, which is who um, uh, uh VP Jezebel served, right? So VP Jezebel was kind of in charge of the spiritual temperature of the land. She had 450 preachers who preached for Baal and 400 prophets who preached for Asherah, which was the consort of Baal. So Baal was a problem. Now, if you want to go down a rabbit hole this afternoon, go home on your phone or somewhere, type in Baal worship, and you'll be able to read for days about Baal worship. But let me, let me summarize it for you a little bit. Baal was the chief god of the Canaanites, and he was in charge of weather and fertility, weather and fertility. Sometimes he was called the storm god. But the problem with Baal, number one was he he was a false god but number two the way he was worshiped was despicable to people of god uh alcohol flowed freely in the worship of Baal. Drunkenness was part of the worship experience. Not only that, sexual perversion was part of the worship experience where they had temple prostitutes, male and female, and that's how you worshiped. And sometimes they sacrificed children to the fire, which meant they literally took their firstborn children and to earn the favor of Baal, they would burn their children alive in a sacrifice. It was a reprehensible religion. It was a reprehensible cult, and Elijah wanted uh, to face them down in prayer. And so he says, hey, we'll go to Mount Carmel. I want you to bring all the prophets of Baal, and I want all of Israel to be there, like all of the heads of the houses of Israel, all the leaders of the nation. I want them all. So basically, he got the Senate and the House to go to the top of the hill. And there's 450 prophets of Baal, and there are 400 prophets of Asherah, which was the consort of Baal. And they were supported by the throne and finances of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel. Mount Carmel, you'll find this interesting, was the land between Israel and Phoenicia, and it was considered a sacred place for Baal. There were altars and worship of Baal. So here's what Elijah has set up. The odds were completely stacked against Elijah. He was the visiting team. He was in the stadium of the other guy. He was outnumbered 850 to 1. All of the throne and earthly power are on the other side. So matter of fact, you imagine as a football field or imagine as a baseball game, Elijah is sitting alone in his dugout and there are thousands of people in the dugout in the stands. And Elijah looks back here behind him and there's not a fan in the stand. But over there on Baal's side, there are all kinds of people. But here's what Elijah knew. That when he came to prayer, Elijah's prayer plus God is a majority. You know, I think when Elijah got in this situation, the text bears it out. 
that Elijah wanted to be the underdog in the prayer situation. Elijah didn't want anybody on his side. Elijah, as a matter of fact, says, hey, I don't even have anybody on my side. It is me and God against all y'all over there. And Elijah wanted it that way. Why? Why did Elijah want to be the visiting team? Why did he want to be outnumbered? Because here's why. He wanted to be the underdog so God could show himself strong in prayer. Listen, I know when it comes to praying for revival in our land, I know, man, you watch CNN, I know it looks hopeless. Turn on the news and it seems like everything is going against us. But here's what I want to tell you, that when it's us plus God, we are the majority. You say, well, the most people... Most of the people, they don't think like us. Most of the people, they don't act like us. Most of the people, they don't vote like us. I don't care if God is on our side. We are in the majority in life. But can I tell you this? In your own life, when you're facing opposition, heartache, trouble, difficulties, I know there are times it seems like your problems are bigger than your solutions are. But when you get on your knees to pray, you, your prayers plus God is still a majority. As a matter of fact, no, no matter how outnumbered you look, no matter how under the gun you look, no matter how much of an underdog you look like, you need to get on your knees. And when you pray, know this, as long as God is on my side, as long as I am on the side of God, we are in the majority. How many of you are, let me illustrate this. How many of you are Georgia fans go dogs? Anybody else in here? Thank you. If you're new to our church and you don't know this, uh, I'm a big Georgia Bulldog fan. I tolerate Alabama and I hate Tennessee. That pretty much sums everything up. Sums everything up. How many of you are non-Alabama fans? Let me see your hand. All right. How many of you are Alabama fans? What are you supposed to say, Alabama fans? Come on. Roll Tide, right, right. So it's with great angst. I'm trying to make a spiritual principle this morning, all right? And I'm stepping out of my comfort zone, all right? Alabama won the national championship this year again. And you can break down why Alabama won the national championship because I have, I have. I can't figure out why Georgia can beat them for 58 minutes of a football game, but can't beat them that last two minutes of a football game. I can't figure it out. But I'll tell you why Alabama has won, what, what is it now, 615 national championships. I, I know why it is. It is because of one thing, and it's not this guy, as good as he may have been. It's this guy. Do you know Nick Saban is at least 11-0 against former coaches? That's unheard of. He's never lost a game at home by double digits, by 10 points. And he's ever only lost seven at Tuscaloosa the whole time he's been coached for over a decade. He's 73-0 and against unranked teams. And he has produced in his tenure, not counting this year, which will drastically raise this number. He has produced in his tenure 27 first-round draft picks. And if you don't know anything about Football, just let me tell you, 27 first-round draft picks in about a decade is absolutely amazing, not counting this year. And the thing, as soon as I won the national championship, I was, I was working on this sermon, and, and, and I just said, you know what? I'm just going to look. Because here's the thing that amazes me about um, Nick Saban is that every year 
he loses multiple coaches to other jobs. So I thought to myself, how many coaches has he lost? And I spent too much time coming up with the answer. Because <laughs> it took a little digging, but here's what I discovered. In 2009, when they won the national championship, he had lost two coaches that year. In 2010, he lost one. In 2011, when they won the national championship, you'll hear that phrase a lot, they lost three. In 2012, when they won the national championship, they lost one. In 2013, they lost three. In 2014, they lost two. In 2015, when they won the national championship, they lost two. In 2016, they lost four. In 2017, when they won the national championship, they lost two. In 2018, they lost six. In 2019, they lost seven. And in 2020, when they won the national championship, they lost two. But yet, one, two, three four, five, six national championships. And can I say this? No other college football program can say anything like that. So here is what I figured out. Do you know what the truth, the key to winning at Alabama is? Nick Saban plus any warm body equals national championship. Like literally, I could be the offensive coordinator for Alabama and be doing my best to tank the team and I think we'd still win a national championship. Because the common denominator is not the players, they come and go. The common denominator is not the coaches, they come and go. There's one consistent common denominator in Alabama and it's a guy named Nick Saban. Nick Saban plus any warm body equals a national championship. And listen, if you'll let me take that, that illustration that hurt my heart to say it, if you'll let me take that illustration to make a point, when it comes to a revival, when it comes to your personal prayers, I know it feels like the odds are stacked against you. I know it feels like the odds are stacked against us. But can I tell you this? God plus you equals a majority every time. God plus your prayers can revive America. God plus your prayers can overcome obstacles. God plus your prayers can defeat our enemy. We can come out victorious, can tackle whatever problem you have in life. Don't worry this morning because the problems seem bigger than you. God plus your prayers equal a majority. And by the way, if you take you out of the equation, God's still a majority all by himself. And Elijah looked out and saw 850 to 1, thousands of people on the other side. Nobody in the stands. He said, I'm alone. And he said, we're going to show them up, aren't we, God? It's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be a route for the visiting team. And I want you to know when you get on your knees and you pray and it seems like the odds are against you, it seems like the enemy is stacked against you, and it seems like there's no way for you to overcome, you plus God equals a majority. Second thing I want to tell you is this. When it comes to revival praying, number two, pray for the impossible or the improbable. Here's the story. Both were going to create an altar, right, offer a bull on sacrifice. Baal controlled the elements, so this shouldn't have been hard. He could have just struck the, the sacrifice with lightning, blown it to pieces, and everything would have been fine. For Israel, they were going to put a bull on the altar, and it would be a, there are two reasons used a bull in sacrifice. It was a worship offering or sin offering, forgiveness of sin offering, both would prepare sacrifice, both would pray to the respective gods, and then ask him to burn the offering with fire from heaven. No big deal, right? It's all we want you to do, God. Burn the offering with fire from heaven. Just drop fire down on us. Point being, Elijah wasn't asking for something that can be done in his own power. Elijah set the ground rules. He said, y'all agree to this? Sound like a good plan to y'all? And they, for some reason, they said, yeah. 
I don't know why they said, yeah, but they said, yeah, something like a plan to us. And so Elijah said, here's what we'll do. All we're going to ask God to do, something simple, drop fire from heaven and burn the offering up. What Elijah was asking for in this duel was for the impossible or the improbable to happen. Now, can I tell you this about our praying? Can I tell you I feel convicted right here that our least effective praying, my least effective praying, or we can, we can answer our own prayers with a little bit more hard work, with a little bit better decision-making, or a change in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit that ought to be happening anyway. You know that? Look at your prayer list. Hopefully you have a prayer list. Look at your prayer list. I bet you half the things on your prayer list you could do if you worked hard enough or made better decisions in your own life. Half the mess we're in, we did it to ourselves. That's not what Elijah was doing. Elijah wanted to back God into a corner and he was more interested in praying for the impossible and the improbable for one reason, one reason. So God would get all of the glory for the answered prayer. I'm going to tell you this morning, church, God is interested in rescuing you when life has gotten out of control. Let's be honest. How many of us, raise your hand, how many of us, your own life has gotten out of your control before? Has that ever happened to you? Show me. You raise your hand and say, yeah, yeah, that's happened, right? That life has gotten out of control. That life has gotten too big for us. That life has gotten too confusing for us. And it's in those situations. Here it is. Follow me. It's in those situations. Oh man, this is a hard place to be. Hear me. Hard place to be. When I can't connect the dots on how God can answer my prayer, right? You with me? There are times you're praying and we're like this, Lord, if you'll just, if you'll just do this and then do this and then do this and that, then God, everything will be okay. Well, you know what's hard is when you go, I have no idea. Like, God, I don't know how you can get me from here to here. That's impossible praying. That's improbable praying. And there are times in our lives when our life has gotten out of our control and we look at it and we say, God, I give up. That's the kind of praying God specializes in. Y'all know I just had my third grandson. I don't talk about my grandkids nearly enough, not nearly enough especially in sermons. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about my grandkid, Jax, our oldest one, who's about 18, 19 months old. I'm going to show you about a one-minute video up here. Now, Michaela sent it to us, his mom, and, and, and she'd, she had, he had a tricycle, and he was trying to figure out the tricycle. They've been working with him to figure out the tricycle. And I'm going to show you about a one-minute video that this is how we feel sometimes in life, right? Just hang on to the end, and, and I'll make a point yeah, to you. Yeah, Jax, look at Mama. Jax, look. Oh, oh. Oh, oh wow. Oh my. <laughs> what do you want to do with it? Oh, Jack, wow. Oh my. <laughs> Where is it going? That's my favorite part, right? Uh, he hit his head. He couldn't figure it out. And at the end, he was like, stupid game anyway. He just tops it over. Uh, he's like a boy, all boy, right? If we can't win it, it's a dumb game. So I uh, just dumb, dumb thing. I don't figure it out. 
And I saw that video a, a, a few months ago, and I thought, that's, that's how we feel about life sometimes, right? That life has got us by the, well, let me say this way, the handlebars of life have us in a pickle, right? Like we can't quite figure out what to do with life. We can't quite figure out what to do with all of our problems. And there are times we just want to take our lives and just be done with. Push it over and God, I give up. The mess is the mess. I cannot do anything about it. I cannot figure it out. And that's when God steps in, just like Elijah taught us and said, hey, it's when things look impossible. It's when an answer looks improbable. That's when we pray. That's when we pray for the problem we can't solve. That's when we pray for the situation we can't fix. That's when we pray for the mess we can't undo, for the miracle you can't produce, for the revival you can't make manufacturer listen pray for the impossible there's some of you here this morning and you look at your life and there's a need in your life and it's so big and it's so it's so impossible you don't even know how to pray Elijah said that's when God does his best work is when only he can get the glory I'm going to tell you, sometimes you get down on your knees in prayer and we're almost embarrassed to ask God for impossible things. But can I tell you, God wants us to back him into a corner where if he shows up and shows out, only he gets the glory. Let me show you the third thing. I'm going to hit these next two really quickly. We learn from Elijah. Number one, three, our God is better than their God. I love Elijah let the other guys go first. They ran and raved, danced, and cut themselves. They literally acted the fool there on the mountain. And you know what happened? Absolutely nothing. So then about noon, Elijah was probably a little hungry, and he started mocking them. Maybe your guy's asleep. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe your God's on vacation, giving them a hard time. So the Bible says they just did it even more and more and more. What would cause Elijah to be so bold to mock their church their 850 prophets and, and but here's why because god, elijah knew his god was better than uh, their god in the battle between the god of the bible and the god of the world listen to me our god always wins there are people sometimes they'll be like well preacher we don't want prayer back in schools because you know people will pray to all kinds of gods i am totally fine with that I don't have a problem with prayer being back in school tomorrow. You know why? I'll put our Christian kids praying to their God against the praying to anybody else's God any day of the week. I, I'm not, that's right. Hey, I'm not worried about our kids converting to whatever they're praying to. I am expecting whatever they're praying to to be converted to our God. You know why our God's better than theirs is. They're, they're praying to God who doesn't answer prayers. Fourth thing I tell you, and I'm just hitting these quickly. I don't have time for them. Number four, you may need to fix up before you pray up. It starts in verse number 30 that apparently there had been an altar to the Lord on Mount Carmel and it had been abandoned and left to decay. The offering, the, the altar represented obedience, worship, sacrifice, and reverence to God and all that had waned. And before Elijah said the first prayer, 
The Bible tells us he repaired the altar of the Lord. Can I say this about revival praying in our lives, miracle praying in our lives? Much of the time our prayers are not answered because we haven't repaired the altar of the Lord in our hearts and lives. And maybe before we get on our knees and ask God for something amazing, maybe, just maybe, we need to repair the altar in our lives. Maybe we need to repair the altar of thanksgiving. Maybe we need to repair the altar of worship in a church. Maybe we need to repair the altar of giving and obedience and prayer and holiness and witness and forgiveness. Maybe, just maybe, there may be something in your life that before you ask God for the impossible or the improbable that you need to repair the altar. Number five, and I'm finished. Revival praying means you have to have faith to get the fire with all the preliminaries out of the way the man of God turned his attention to his prayer it was totally unlike the bell worshipers they had danced cut themselves shouted literally had their own blood flowing over the altar screamed ranted raved ranted raved Elijah quietly builds back up the altar and he said a prayer is a couple of sentences. It would have taken less than a minute, maybe 30 seconds to say the prayer. But the thing is, it was a prayer of unwavering faith. Elijah in 1 Kings 18 prayed that prayer with absolutely no doubt God would answer. As a matter of fact, the way Elijah prayed was this. Here's what Elijah said. I'm going I'm to put it, I'm trying to put all this in the vernacular of our day. Elijah said this, God, this is going to be pretty embarrassing if you don't answer this prayer. I'm just telling you, God, if you don't answer this prayer, it's going to be embarrassing. People are watching. But if you do answer it, people will give their hearts to you, and that's what you want. That's why I'm here. So if I were you, I'd send fire. It's not a prayer that's going to go down in the annals of history as the greatest prayer ever prayed. I'm not sure Elijah wasn't picking his teeth with a toothpick when he prayed it. I mean, it was it's just, just a simple little prayer. And the Bible says that the fire fell. Why? Hear me. The power wasn't in the prayer. The, prayer, the power wasn't in the prayer. The power wasn't in the fire. The power was in the God of prayer. You know one reason my own praying falls short, maybe you can empathize with me, is I pray for impossible things and then don't expect God to answer. And Elijah on Mount Carmel just said, hey, I'm going to be bold enough that in front of all these people, I'm going to put God on the spot. And I'm going to say, God, I need you to do a miracle. And I'm going to expect you and believe that you're going to do it. When was the last time the praying in your life got to the point of you didn't just pray for God to do the impossible, but you believed he was going to do the impossible? Close your Bibles and I'm, I'm finished. You won't recognize this man on the screen. I'll be honest, he'll be in front of you in heaven. He'll be in front of me by a long shot. His name is George Mueller. 
George Mueller in the 19th century in London started orphanages that operated totally off the faith principle. He said, we'll never ask man for money. We'll never borrow money. We'll only live off what God provides. Now, I know you hear the word orphanage today and you don't think anything about it. It's a huge deal. Europe and really around the world in the 19th century had a major orphanage, orphan problem. And the, the, especially in urban cities, in the 19th century, and especially London. London was worst of them all. You, you go back and read the history. They're just, they're just orphan kids, abandoned kids running through the streets of London, starving continually, starving. Parents were literally abandoning their children as babies, abandoning them when they were young. The parents couldn't feed the children, couldn't take care of them. London was just a disaster back then. And so uh, they're just all over the place. And so God said that, uh, George Mueller said God laid on his heart to start an orphanage. He, he built an orphanage that housed 2,000 orphans. In his lifetime, he, he cared for over 10,000 orphans, raised 10,000 orphans in his lifetime in the 19th century. It all started when he was in prayer and he was praying to God about uh, starting an orphanage. And he, he felt God said this, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. It was a Bible verse. And he said, God wants me to receive the blessings he's giving to me. Here's one story. Go read any book on George Mueller. You will love it. It'll help your prayer life so much. George Mueller walked in the dining hall one day and there were 2,000 orphans sitting there. And there were plates and cups out, but there was no food or milk or anything on the tables. He goes in the kitchen and, and the kitchen ladies said, there is no food. The pantries are empty. We have nothing. We have not one morsel of food to feed these children. So Mueller walked out into the dining hall in front of the kids and he said, kids, we're not going to be late for school. He's a stickler for starting on time because he had a school as part of the order. He said, we're not going to be late for school. I'm going to pray. And if God sends food, we'll eat. If he doesn't, then we'll start school. So he got up and he prayed this. Recorded, he prayed this prayer. He held his hands up to heaven. And he said, Dear Father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. Amen. Literally, literally said amen. Knock on the front door of the orphanage. He goes and answering it. And the, the London bread baker says, George, I, God woke me up in the middle of the night last night and said, that you weren't going to have food for the orphans today. And I, I don't know if this is right or not, but I got up at 2 a.m., went to the bakery, and I've been baking bread all through the night, and I have a truckload of bread to give your orphans this morning. They unloaded all the bread, which was more than enough. The baker no more than left, then there was a knock at the door. Someone answered the door. They took him to George Mueller, and it was the dairy company in London. And he came to George Mueller and he said, hey, um, I was on my way to deliver milk all throughout London and my cart has broken down weirdly right in front of your orphanage. And I need to get the cart fixed, but I can't get it fixed with all this milk and all this milk is going to spoil unless I give it away this morning. So can your orphanage use the milk that was destined to be delivered all over London so I can uh, go get my cart fixed? And he, he... Unloaded all the milk, which was more than enough. All the, all the bread, all the milk. After, after he had prayed, Lord, thank you for the food we're going to eat today. You go read the story of George Mueller. It's story like that over and over 
and over again. Why? Because you knew you had to have the faith to get the fire. You want to lay down tracks for revival in your life, for victory, for blessings in your life? We can say the prayers, but do we really believe God is going to do what we're asking Him to do? That's the decision we face today. Would you stand with me? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you're here today and you do not know 100% sure, 100%, that if you were to die today, you'd spend eternity in heaven. Look, you can't be 99% sure of that statement. You can't be 95%. You have to be 100% sure that if you were to die today, heaven's your home. Today, you take care of that. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, nobody's looking around. But if you'd like to know for sure today, you'd like to put your faith and trust in Jesus. I'll lead you in a prayer. It's not the prayer that saves you, but it's the intent of your heart to give your heart and life to Jesus and trust Him. Admit, believe, and confess. Know 100% sure. Two of the girls were baptizing this morning. I asked them that question, and they both said, they're not 100% sure, and I was led them to faith in Jesus. They're getting baptized today. Simply because they knew. The more you talk about it, the less sure you become. 100% sure. If you'd like to be 100% sure, pray, pray something like this. It's not the words that save you, but the intent of your heart is to trust Jesus. Pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and can't save myself. I believe that Christ died on the cross for my sin and rose again the third day. And just now I invite Christ into my life to save me, forgive me of my sin, and give me a home in heaven. And I trust Jesus and Jesus alone. If you just put your faith in Jesus, is what we call that, you are born again. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week as we help equip you to apply God's Word to your daily life. For the latest updates about what's happening around Peavine City, be sure to connect with us on social media. For more information about Peavine, to get in touch with us or check out one of our services, visit us at peavine.org. Thanks for listening.